Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Los Angeles. It's spring 1972. Tickets for the Rolling Stones tour of North America are minutes away from going on sale. If figures from other cities are any indication, competition will be fierce. In Detroit, there were 120,000 requests for 12,000 seats. In Chicago, 34,000 tickets sell out in just five and a half hours. There was a similar story in San Francisco, where people stood outside the ticket office all day and got nothing but disappointment. All this to say, most people in line at the Topanga Plaza shopping center waiting for the Ticketron counter to open are well aware that they'll probably walk away empty-handed. But Jeffrey from Encino is prepared to get creative. This enterprising young freak is determined to get satisfaction. He's been camped out since the night before, along with about 200 other kids bundled in sleeping bags and blankets. But even these extreme measures might not be enough. You see, the ticket window can be found within a large department store, and the employees are given early access. In other words, they can just rock up and cut the line. To Jeffrey from Encino, that just doesn't seem fair to everyone who just used the pavement for a pillow. To fight this injustice, Jeffrey from Encino is about to go undercover. A half hour before the Ticketron window opens, he changes into a clean white shirt and tie. After carefully smoothing out the wrinkles, he marches through a door on the side of the building marked employees. I'm in personnel, he airily informs the guard. He makes it three steps into the store before some sour-faced lady at the desk hisses, Young man, I'm in personnel and I've never seen you before. The guard puts the collar on Jeffrey from Encino and shows him the door. The crowd outside, still bleary-eyed in their sleeping bags, cheer him on as they see him being pushed out the door by a guard. Gotta give a fellow Stones fan credit for trying. Pitching, someone yells out. Way to go, man, yells another. But Jeffrey from Encino isn't giving up that easily. Enlisting the help of two fellow freaks, he sneaks around the far side of the building to a heavy iron grate. Together, they lift it high enough for Jeffrey from Encino to wiggle under and slip down a back stairway. It looks like he's made it this time. 
until the stairway brings him out right by the desk where the same old sour-faced lady from personnel is sitting. She sees Jeffrey and yells for a guard to throw him out. More cheers from the sidewalk. Hey, it's that dude again, someone in the crowd shouts. Far out, brother! It's 9.30, a half hour before the window opens. It's hot already, and the unsmug sunshine makes everything look worn and dead. Jeffrey from Encino's enraged. He knows that somebody's in there already, cutting a corner and waiting online for tickets ahead of him. At this very minute, he's being ripped off, and he hates it. So he tries the other side of the building, where he finds another movable grate. Up it goes, and Jeffrey from Encino's in and under and down a back stairway that opens out into the boys' department. He's nervous. No telling what the sour-faced lady will do if she catches him this time. Desperate to blend in, he makes like a floor walker and starts straightening out a pile of Levi's. Then he sees it. Plastic name tag, presumably belonging to some salesman or clerk who left it there at closing time. Jeffrey from Encino takes the nameplate and clips it onto his pocket. For the first time all day, he's legal. With renewed confidence, he takes the escalator down to the Ticketron booth. There are already eight people in line there. All suspicions confirmed. The company's got the fix in for its own employees. All these poor kids who've been outside for anywhere from 10 to 16 hours are being ripped off. Jeez, he thinks. You have to be a criminal in America these days just to stay even. Who's that? One lady in front of Jeffrey from Encino suddenly says to another. I've never seen him before. These women are clearly not fans of the Stones and are definitely just getting tickets for their grandnieces or something. And they're clearly not fans of his either. And Jeffrey from Encino can feel the bust coming. He starts to sweat. Oh, he says, charming as can be, lying through his teeth. I work in the boys department. I started last week. Well, the ladies are hemming and hawing over that one. They're about to go for a guard, but a long hair in front of them says, Hey, he's okay. I know the guy. He works in shirts. The two ladies relax. The bust is postponed, and Jeffrey smiles gratefully to the fellow freak who pulled him out. It's 10 o'clock now. The building's officially open. Buzzers go off and the doors unlock, and that's when it happens. Jeffrey from Encino feels it as much as he hears it, thundering from across the building towards him and the Ticketron counter. It gets louder with each passing second. Then he sees them, the horde of freaks who will not be denied, hauling through the furniture department, pounding past shelves of cut glass decanters and wooden salad bowls, running up the down escalators, tearing away the rope from in front of the Ticketron booth and obliterating the line. For the first time all day, Jeffrey from Encino feels fear. But by the time the thundering stops and the crowd starts milling around and shouting at the Ticketron lady, Jeffrey from Encino has the situation in hand. In his palm, to be exact. Four tickets to the Stones at the LA Forum. They're his. That story comes courtesy of Robert Greenfield. The legendary rock journalist was the dedicated Stones correspondent for Rolling Stone magazine as a 20-something in the early 70s. He was in L.A. to witness the mad scramble to obtain tickets to the Exile on Main Street tour in the spring of 72. He was also there in June when the tour rolled through town. This was a big one for the band. 
LA was the dark heart of the music world, where everything was beautiful, but nothing was quite what it seemed. The crimes of Charles Manson and his so-called family less than three years earlier had brought that point home. To all appearances, they were a merry band of musical free spirits, pointing the way to a more tolerant and free way of life. Yet they proved capable of unspeakable acts of savagery. It was all about image in LA, and image can't be trusted. Up to this point of the tour, the band had worried about the Hell's Angels, fearing that the bikers would launch a retaliatory attack for the disaster at Altamont. But here, the killers could be anyone. Many ghosts would emerge from the Hollywood Hills during the Stones' visit, including the specter of death. In addition to Greenfield, and his never-before-heard tapes of the Stones in their 70s exile-era glory, will be joined by his friend and fellow STP tourmate Gary Stromberg, the band's PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. What's more, he also had a terrifyingly close encounter with Hollywood's most notorious madman. My name's Jordan Runtog, and this is the Stones Touring Party. For the Rolling Stones, being in LA isn't like being on the road at all. This was where Exile on Main Street was completed just a few months before, and where the tour had been meticulously plotted. Hell, they just left from here less than a week earlier. Probably felt like deja vu. Many of the entourage forgo hotels, opting to stay in their own houses instead. As far as Robert Greenfield was concerned, Los Angeles was the STP hometown. Stones always liked L.A. They'd lived here before, remember? Mick had that house up in the hills with the pool. 69. They had lived here in 69, okay? And so they were comfortable here. They came here early. The whiskey and the strip. I mean, this was legend to them. They, it's like going to the Apollo. They understood the Sunset Strip. It was iconic. The Rolling Stones always had an oversized place in their hearts for Los Angeles. To them, it was the gateway to America. This was pop culture ground zero, the birthplace of movies and media from which they, and their English peers, pieced together a fantastical picture of the United States. Compared to gray, deprived post-war Britain, it seemed like the promised land, a far-off magical place where everything was colorful and larger than life. Superman, Coca-Cola, Frank Sinatra, Mickey Mouse, and hot dogs America produced a ceaseless flood of stars, styles, and trends, and the U.S. economic boom made even everyday life seem impossibly glamorous. Big cars with big fins, big houses with big lawns, and big television sets with the biggest celebrities. For Brits, America seemed cooler, richer, and a hell of a lot more fun than anything they had. This America existed more in the mind than on the map, but they'd figure that out later. Hollywood didn't have the same sort of luster for local Los Angelinos. LA made fantasy food for the world and created stars who were the physical embodiments of that fantasy. But familiarity breeds contempt, and those closest to the fantasy-making process had few illusions about it all. They always knew which great star was a junkie or a gambling addict or a philanderer or whatever your imagination deems worse. 
Hollywood hype had sold a lot of things, but more than anything else, it sold the image of America to the rest of the world. An image can't be trusted. But still, guitarist Mick Taylor remembered his childlike excitement during his first trip to the States. Most English kids of my age had sort of fantasies about the way America was, you know, through the movies, through television, uh, plus the fact that um, American music was what we all admired most of all and what we were most influenced by, you know. So it was like a dream come true the first time I went there. Despite its disturbing reputation for violence, both international and domestic, America continued to entrance the Stones. Drummer Charlie Watts freely admitted that the prospect of traveling through the States on the STP tour scared the hell out of him. But speaking to Robert Greenfield in 1972, he admitted a deep affection for the place. Here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. I've always loved America, and I've always loved American people. I am a product of America. I'm, I'm as English as anybody, in, in, in a funny sense, you know. My life is not run like an American. My home doesn't look like an American. It's a typical English home, do you know what I mean? With a teapot, Georgian silver, all that shit. I'm not American. I hate those fucking Hollywood homes. I go to them. I look, that same thing, curiosity, sure. like the mansion. I go there. I look at all those pools, man. I they're great. They really are lovely. I don't live there. It's not me, but I'm a product of America. I totally am, purely by what I do and what my interests are. My interests are, firstly, visual art, graphics, which was is when I was younger, you know, and doing it was all American. Man. It was totally American. Clothes. I used to fucking go crazy about Ivy League. I still do. That's what all I wear, man, is a fucking Ivy League suit. To me, the only music in the world was black American. still is, in a way. Funny way. But, I mean, it's all based around that. I'm a total American product. They adored America as a whole, but L.A. was a special kind of thrill. They'd loved it since they first arrived in the mid-60s. It was here that they recorded their immortal satisfaction in 1965. The place had always been good to them, and the music coming from here inspired them, especially the country rock sound pioneered by Keith Richards' one-time Nelcut house guest, Graham Parsons and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Here's what the Stones were always aware of. When they played San Francisco, they knew where they were. When they played Nashville, they knew where they were. When they played L.A., they knew they were in the heart of the beast. They knew that the business was here, but they also knew how much music was being made here. This is Laurel Canyon at its peak, basically. They're all still up there. Mama Cass and the Eagles were breaking. Why did they play the Palladium? Because of the burritos, because of Graham. They loved that music, L.A. country. The golden days of Hollywood were long gone by the summer of 72, with the movies having given way to pop music and pro sports as America's primary fantasy obsessions. As a result, a new kind of star had come along, the rock star. Since musicians had always been considered outside the law, lawlessness became part of the aura. The Rolling Stones, with a bona fide criminal record, fit the bill perfectly. To many, the rock star was more potent than any silver screen idol because they lived everyone's fantasy life right out in the open where it could be picked at and discussed. As one Stones associate once said, rock stars are groovy because they smoke more cigarettes, take more dope, drink more whiskey, stay up later, and have sex more frequently and in odder positions than most people do. In other words, 
in post-everything bizarro America, they do the things that everybody wants to do. That's the illusion, at least. And illusion is an L.A. industry. It's all part of what we'll call rock biz, a youthful and exuberant subsection of the music business. The rock biz headquarters is the Sunset Strip, America's main street of hype and promotion, where Dick Clark and Phil Spector are across-the-street neighbors, and Tower Records, the so-called largest record store in the known world, is the closest thing to a true community center that L.A. has. A relatively new phenomenon, the rock biz is perfectly L.A. and totally American. It's transitory, hard, cruel, and full of paranoia, with such extreme rewards for those willing to accept its challenge and go out on the edge to make it. Gary Stromberg explains. Careers were made in L.A. I mean, that was simply put. Uh, Unlike anywhere else, media, uh, all of the music business generated from Los Angeles. New York was distant second when it came to generating the careers of artists. And, you know, it had this legendary uh, reputation, and and these guys were very well aware of it and, and, and knew how to deal with it. They were very good at dealing with it. The other thing that was going on at that point in time in terms of this business that Gary was a part of creating was that there had never been a David Geffen and Elliot Roberts before who were Joni's manager, and then we don't have to tell you who David Geffen was, you know. And so, you know, the music business initially, record business was much like the movie business, the immigrants, uh, Samuel Goldwyn, Louis Mayer, who grew up in the street, came from nothing, and created the movie business, okay? And kind of the record companies certainly were in the 50s, the independent labels, and but then around this era, in the late 60s, Laurel Canyon, the early 70s, you have another thing going on. You have these great artists, Jackson Brown and Joni, you know, like Asylum Records, and the young people are taking over this business. And the artists are managed by people their same age as them. That's unheard of. All the folkies were managed by Manny Greenhill. He was, you know, Joan, Baez, and Albert Grossman and Dylan. Your manager was 55 years old and probably fat. Okay, you know? Okay, fine. So now you've got this whole other sensibility. They were all making it up as they went along. Rock Biz lived and breathed the Stones for the second week of July in 1972. They sold out four shows at three of the biggest and most storied venues in L.A. County, the Forum, the Long Beach Arena, and the Hollywood Palladium. As the legendary disc jockey Wolfman Jack said at the time, if Jesus Christ came to town, he couldn't sell more tickets. But as far as Keith Richards was concerned, it was just business as usual. I mean, when you get this thing like that, it always sounds so flashy. I mean, you really do think get used to it, you know what I mean? It still knocks me out to set out a show in two hours flat, but I don't feel that it's any particular milestone, you know, because I've heard that story for the last 10 years, you know what I mean? And you do it because that's what you like to do, you know, and you still happen to like to do it, you know. It's not that anybody started out to sort of make milestones, you know, it's just one of those things that evolved. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife... The Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Seventeen-year-old Danny Sugarman's got no shirt, no shoes, no wallet, no keys. The shirt went when he took it off and stuck it in his back pocket. The shoes, wallet, and keys disappeared sometime later in the crush of the crowd. But it's all right. In fact, it's a gas. Danny's just seen the Rolling Stones at the Hollywood Palladium. And he is knocked out. Solid gone, man. He stands shoeless and bare-chested in the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel just past midnight, hoping to catch a glimpse of his heroes. They were so good, man. So good, he gushes to Robert Greenfield. The way they looked, like refugees from a clockwork orange. That makeup. Tell me, man, are they doing a lot of coke? Does Mick really stuff socks down his underwear? Is it true, man? His enthusiasm is amusing, considering the Palladium show is generally seen as pretty mediocre by STP standards. Thankfully, tour manager Peter Rudge's worst fears go unrealized, and the venue was not swarmed by armed and hairy men on motorcycles. The worst they had to contend with was a small but vocal group of reactionaries, marching up and down in front of the building chanting, More Bible! Less Rolling Stones! More unnerving was the small, strange-looking man who arrived at the stage door, claiming to be Brian Jones. The band's founding guitarist had been dead nearly three years that summer. The strange apparition presented a card, establishing his credentials as a member of the Church of Satan, a move that hardly endeared him to anybody. Then he handed over a microphone, claiming that Mick had asked him to bring it. The package was politely received and then immediately placed into the nearest bucket of water as soon as the man was out of sight. Aside from this, the gig was nothing special. Even promoter Bill Graham, 
prone to florid declarations of support for his acts, was left underwhelmed. I was very sad there because it was a non-event. It, it, it was the weirdest thing in the world. It was a non-event. It didn't happen. I can't figure it out. That was supposed to be the big thing in LA because I don't, I don't have the answer. We all have a habit. Everybody becomes a, a theoretician. There's no answer. Why didn't it come off? Nobody rioted. No helicopters came down. From the minute I got there, there was a, it was a non-event. But Danny, man, he was blown away. This is hardly surprising, considering Danny is a Stone superfan. He's already worn out five copies of Sticky Fingers. Assuming that records can be played an average of a thousand times before serious degradation in sound quality begins to occur, that means Danny has played this Stone's record more than 5,000 times, or 10 times a day constantly since it was released 14 months earlier. Far out. Like Jeffrey from Encino, Danny worked hard for his tickets to see the Stones. 14 hours standing in line outside the Century City shopping plaza yielded nothing, so he turned to scalpers. But then he hit another snag. After heading to the bank and withdrawing his life savings, he was devastated to learn that the tickets were going for $75 each, more than 10 times their face value. So he resorted to plan C, spending an entire day on the phone getting a hold of every Stones fan he knew desperate to make them an offer they couldn't refuse. Finally, after parting with tickets to Jethro Tull, Led Zeppelin, and The Grateful Dead, plus 12 new albums, he was going to see the Stones. The acquisition made him quite popular with his high school classmates. Even his crush from algebra class was intrigued. The same one would be giving him the cold shoulder for a year and a half. She sidled up to him one day in the hallway and let it slip that she knows he has Stones tickets. And if he wanted to ask her, she wouldn't say no. Maybe they could get a bite to eat afterwards, and after that, who knows? This sounds like a fantasy scenario for Danny, but he turns her down. See, he's got to stay cool in front of her. And this is just not possible at a Stones concert. He's going to have to scream and freak out, and she just can't be a witness to that. Hell, she might even tell the whole school about how he danced by himself in the aisles. He didn't need that mark on his reputation. So he went stag. As it turns out, Danny will be going to every one of the Stones concerts in LA, the Palladium, Long Beach, and the Forum. Why? To see if they deliver, man, he tells Greenfield. One time he saw the Dead play for six hours, and he was high on it for weeks. The Stones at their best are an even greater peak. I've had my friends tell me about Alice Cooper or The Faces, and I've seen them work, he tells Greenfield. I've even dropped some reds to listen to Grand Funk Railroad, and they were still terrible. But the Stones, man, every energy freak in LA is gonna turn out to see him. The Rolling Stones are a solid decade older than Danny and his friends. This is no small concern. There were fears in the lead up to the tour that the band were past it, over the hill, ready to be put out to pasture. To some, it's considered positively unseemly for men of their advanced age to rock out on stage at the Forum or Madison Square Garden. Remember, this was the era of the ever-widening generation gap time when kids wore buttons bearing the slogan, don't trust anyone over 30. Now the Stones were reaching that all-important demarcation, and yet their drawing power is stronger than it was when they and their audience were peers. Keith Richards, for one, wasn't surprised by the rapturous response and the string of sold-out shows. But it's always felt like that. I mean, the Rolling Stones have always felt, you know, I mean, all right, they're, 
you know, they were the Beatles too, but I mean, we always felt we were at least equal with them on drawing power as far as, you know, as far as audiences were concerned, and better at them and put, at putting on a good show, you know. Charlie Watts has his own theory as to why the Stones still connect with young fans. Here he is discussing it with Robert Greenfield back in 1972, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. Age. The age thing is, I mean, you're almost twice yeah. as old as well, us. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know. But I mean, there's kids, yeah, I don't know anything about the younger generation. But I don't know what they're doing, you know, I often like what they like. That's the funny thing about it. Yeah. And as I said, I don't know any other way you can look at it. Really? Danny's so hip that he even managed to speak to Mick Jagger. Once. He snuck backstage at a T-Rex concert, hoping to meet Mark Bolin. And there was Mick, leaning against the door jam, waiting for the action. It felt preordained, almost mythical. Danny tentatively approached him like a faithful pilgrim meeting his guru, finally able to ask that one question that would help guide him through life. Hey Mick, he ventures. Hey, how do you keep your head together? Mick's reply was instantaneous. I don't, man. This blows Danny's mind. Mick is the man, the one above all else. And he doesn't have it figured out either? It's just too much, just too goddamn much. And there you have it. A tossed-off remark, self-deprecating, albeit truthful, becomes a deeply meaningful koan to an L.A. teenager. That's the magic of Mick. A decade of lopsided social interactions has made him exceedingly good at giving fans a little moment to hold on to a treasured souvenir for the rest of their lives. It's a skill, one that the rest of his bandmates, including Charlie Watts, could never be bothered with. He cares a lot about what he does, and what he does involves me, and he puts a lot of time that I couldn't be bothered to put into it. And I have nothing but admiration for that, because that's not fun, you know. Throughout his career, Mick Jagger's displayed an uncanny knack for being whatever the moment required, both on stage and off. His image can change from a swaggering frontman to a sensitive little boy, to a cutthroat businessman, to a manor-born aristocrat, to a rebel outlaw, to a father figure for his tour crew, to a rough-and-ready bluesman, to a psychedelic London dandy. This chameleonic quality is crucial to Mick's survival, allowing him to connect with everyone from taxi drivers to Princess Margaret. He's a great poser and role player, and he knows it. English people are always brought up to get on with everyone in every circumstance. I mean, that's everyone. I mean, that applies to everyone, not particularly class group. And uh, I've always found it easy to get on with most people. And I mean, I've been involved with all that since I started, you know, 10 years ago, more or less, though, I mean, though I've had my sort of reactions against it, and I've had my times when I thought it was nice to dress up, you know, and, uh, in sort of very flashy clothes and uh, be very fashionable and, uh, and do all that in London, which I did for years, you know, in actual fact. I mean, I guess so because, because, you know, after coming from really a drab sort of background, you know, it was kind of chic, you know, and then go on the road anyway. I was on the road for years, so I never did anything. I never spent a lot of time with any one particular group of people at all. I never do, you know. 
Some might view this method as inauthentic or even phony. But it's the only way to hold it together when you're on top of the mountain. A mountain made up of money and people's lives. And you have final say over everyone and everything. You have to compartmentalize. By way of example, consider the early days of July, 1969. On Wednesday the 2nd, Brian Jones is found dead in the swimming pool of his country estate in Sussex, the same home where author A.A. A. Milne had written the Winnie the Pooh books. Jones had been a founding member of the Rolling Stones. Then he became a founding member of the 27 Club. Though rumors of foul play will dog Brian's end until the end of time, the authorities officially rule it that most British of phrases, death by misadventure. The tragedy comes a month after he's left the band. The night he dies, the Stones are rehearsing with guitarist Mick Taylor, poached from John Mayall's Blues Breakers to be his replacement. There's simply no time to mourn. On Saturday, they're due to play their first concert in two years. A massive free show in London's Hyde Park slated to draw upwards of a quarter million people. It was intended to be Mick Taylor's grand unveiling to the band's fans. Now it was to be a tribute to Brian. For Taylor, a stone for less than a month, it was an inauspicious start to his tenure. I think we were already rehearsing and recording when we heard about Brian's death. It must have really been strange. It was more strange for everybody else because after all, they, they'd known him for a long time, whereas I'd never, I'd never even met the guy before. I think it was a bit strange for everybody because we'd only had about three days rehearsal before that, and uh, I was very nervous. As, as everybody else was. Brian died Wednesday night. The Stones learn of his death on Thursday morning. They tape a TV appearance for the British music show Top of the Pops that afternoon, miming their way through their new single Honky Tonk Woman, the last Stones session Brian ever attended. The next day, Friday, Mick Jagger wakes up with laryngitis. Rest isn't an option. The next day, he has to perform in Hyde Park. If he doesn't, there'll be 200,000 angry youths uprooting trees and draining the serpentine. A documentary TV crew shadows him from the moment he wakes up, following his every move as the sixth singer prepares to play the biggest show he's ever done. Kids from all over England filter into the park until the crowd's the size of a small city. Mick opens the show by reading two stanzas from Adonais, Shelley's meditation on the death of his friend, John Keats. A ceremonial box of butterflies is opened. Most died in transport, but the survivors flutter to the sky in Brian's memory. Then the stones get to work. This is what they do. Next day, Sunday, Mick boards a one o'clock plane for Australia, where he's scheduled to film a starring role in the movie Ned Kelly. After the grueling hours-long flight, He's greeted at the airport by a protest march. Angry Aussies are offended by the notion of this convicted English longhair playing their national folk hero. Two days later, barely a week after the death of Brian Jones, Mick's girlfriend, the singer and actress Marianne Faithful, attempts suicide by taking a few dozen sleeping pills in the hotel room they shared in Sydney. An unscrupulous journalist sneaks into the intensive care unit of the hospital and takes her photo. When Jagger returns from filming on location, he discovers her on the front page of a newspaper, unconscious and in a coma. Back in England, they're laying Brian Jones to his final rest. But throughout the week, Jagger's on set, working and fulfilling his commitments. Hey Mick, 
How do you keep your head together? We all want to know. Brian's death marked the beginning of a horrific string of casualties that would decimate Rock's ranks by 1971. Robert Greenfield remembers that troubling time. That summer at Nelcutt, Jim Morrison died. And of course, Janice and Jimmy had already died. That's earlier. And again, the level of death in rock and roll. You know, so many people who were at Nelcutt, not with us anymore that summer, that incredible summer. But it was his band. They didn't just lose a band member. They lost the guy who they came together around who was the first star. Brian was the rock idol. And he fell apart in front of their eyes. The group were under no illusions that without Brian Jones, there would have been no Rolling Stones. It was he who formed the band, naming it after his favorite Muddy Waters song. It was he who honed the early sound and the style of the American R&B records he so cherished. Before they found a manager, it was he who rang up venues looking for gigs and signed early contracts. He wasn't merely the leader of the band, For the first few years, he was the heartthrob, the spokesman, the guiding spirit, and the creative engine. And according to Bill Wyman, the virtuoso, experimenting with sounds from Morocco and India, as well as the American South. I think Brian had the big ambition to be a big musician, a great musician. He was great, you know, Brian was great. I don't care what anybody says. Brian was a very good musician, you know. And, um... He, was a, he, he had a lot of new things that nobody else had. He was the first bottleneck guitar player. I mean, nobody knew anything about playing with a piece of metal on the guitar, you know, it was absurd. He was playing this both diddly stuff, you know, with the dip, 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 you know. And, well, that's in tremolos. Well, tremolos have been used before, not the way Brian played, and Brian played it like, like Bo Diddley did. I, I know he got it from America, but he was unique in England, you know. And Dolce, he could pick up any instrument and play, and play it. I'm not saying uh, play it greatly, but be able to use it in a recording or, or whatever. He could just pick up a harp, a full-size harp, and just get something out of it, you know, a flute or a... Oh, it was amazing. Though Brian's death may have been shocking, it wasn't exactly a surprise. The fragile guitarist had been slowly slipping away for two years, retreating further and further into a cocoon of drugs. Most of the time, he was too stoned to attend sessions. On the occasions when he did show up, he often nodded off on the studio floor. Driven to distraction by substances, his bandmates would step in, thus exacerbating Brian's insecurity and anxiety, which led him to self-medicate with more drugs. As far as Brian was concerned, everything he loved was being taken away. He lost girlfriend Anita Pallenberg to Keith Richards, and he lost the band to Mick Jagger. As far as Mick and Keith were concerned, Brian just couldn't hack it anymore. The thing about Mick and Keith, as much as I revere them, they moved on. Like, if you couldn't help them anymore, you were in the rearview mirror and they were never coming back to say hello again. Charlie Watts was unapologetic about their decision to part ways with Brian. I don't think he could function in the situation we'd created for him. Too much pressure. For us. Responsibility. 
from us. Be at the session, yeah. do the gig. Which is fundamentally obvious, because if you ain't going to be there, you ain't going to make a thing. You ain't gonna, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that's what they... And he didn't want to work amongst all that. He was what did much he want? What did he want? Just to gig occasionally, or to just work when he I don't know what he wanted. The dilemma was hardly unique to the Stones. By the late 60s, the occupational hazards of rock and roll had become clear as drugs and burnout sapped the exuberance and promise from many of the decade's brightest creative lights. Brian Wilson had abdicated his role as the Beach Boys' sonic architect, preferring to work on side projects in his home studio before ultimately retreating to his bedroom. Sid Barrett departed Pink Floyd entirely, living out the remainder of his days in the leafy English suburb of Cambridge. Moby Grape co-founder Skip Spence's drug abuse was so bad that he wound up in a morgue after overdosing, only to scare the mortician to death by sitting up, removing his toe tag, and asking for a glass of water. Gene and Michael Clark fled the birds amid stress and bad blood, and groundbreaking psych rocker Rocky Erickson of the 13th floor elevators was sent to a psychiatric hospital following an onstage breakdown in 1968. A pre-famed David Bowie befriended Vince Taylor, an early British rock pioneer who'd been reduced to camping outside London subway stations, where he pointed out secret alien bases on maps and told everyone who would listen that he was the incarnation of Jesus Christ, sowing the seeds for Bowie's Ziggy Stardust character. And an early Fleetwood Mac struggled to cope with the guitarist with a literal messiah complex, beard and robes and all. Peter Green and Fleetwood Mac. Peter Green was a great guitarist, and they moved on. Michael Bloomfield and Butterfield Blues Band. And, and again, you know what? In order to be a survivor, you often have to be a son of a bitch. And Mick and Keith could do this because their path was clear. And the cocaine and the heroin, what they were doing was making music, and that's all they cared about. Somehow that kept them alive. Yeah, also to live in heart and, and die in young was a big part of the, the ethic. Live no, fast, live fast, fast die, die young, young, and leave a beautiful yeah, shadow. Yeah. It was an ethic that was revered, romantic kind of thing. According to Charlie Watts, Brian just wasn't equipped to handle the fast living. The thing with Brian was he'd had a total misuse of his body, man. He didn't give a shit. You know, he wasn't like Keith. He wasn't strong. Keith still takes care of himself. But Brian had no fucking respect for his bodily function at all. I mean, that's the feeling I had about Brian. Yeah. Everything he did, man, was to excess. He could drink a lot. He could drink an incredible Everything he did was to excess, and Brian was one of the excess people. But know? is that where the talent comes from, too? Well, his way? talent, Brian's yeah. talent, he, he forgot about it all. Though Charlie was sure that firing Brian Jones was the right decision for the band, as a friend, he remained haunted by Brian's end and even wondered if they were in some way responsible for it. I think we helped destroy Brian. In what way? In what way? I think he did it, and I think we took it away because he'd never turn up. And it was his fault. Right. You know, it was his right. state of mind. It was what he wanted. It must have been what he wanted in a very direct way. <laughs> it was what he wanted to do, was leave, you know. He didn't want those influences. And I think Mick and Keith was stronger than he was. And I don't think he could cope with that. Because he was always a star. I mean, yeah, he had tremendous ego. We all have, you know, Keith's got a terrific ego. But I mean, I saw him a few days before he died. He lived up the road from me. The house he lived in was very close to mine. You know, I loved him a lot. I could have killed him, man, at times. He was so objectionable. He's a really, 
He was one of those blokes, man, that you could kill and love. If we talk about a love-hate relationship, I think anyone involved with Brian, it was a total love-hate relationship. But my love always was more excess than the hate. The death of Brian Jones could have and probably should have been viewed by the Stones as a cautionary tale, something that very easily could happen to any one of them if they didn't keep their head and keep their drug use in check. But no, the discussion of drug abuse was not especially nuanced in the early 70s. Even the most basic mental health concepts were largely unknown outside of professional psychology circles. To the band, it all boiled down to strength and weakness. Strength was what kept you alive, not healthy decisions. And weakness killed you, not addiction. But bassist Bill Wyman recognized the disturbing parallels between Brian Jones and Keith, both in terms of intake and the company they kept. I talked to Keith about uh, a lot about Bitterman. It's something he said, you know, you can see in Brian, you know, Brian always surrounded himself with people who were sitting looking at the rug wondering who's they were going to get when they rolled it up and so on. And uh, Keith said, well, Hendrix, same thing, surrounded by those kind of people. And yet, I don't know how good Keith has been about well, Keith's exactly the same. People who are really in it. It's exactly what Keith does. Jim Morrison died in a bathtub in Paris, and Keith kept shooting heroin. They didn't see it. You don't. The drug keeps you from seeing it. The guy at the Palladium stage door claiming to be Brian Jones was clearly a madman, but to the band, he seemed like a ghost one they desperately tried to keep at bay. It was a reminder of what it had cost to get where they were and the consequences of the path they were on. How do you keep your head together, man? You don't. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. As the Stones LA visit continues, the concerts are seen less as the main event and more as rude interruptions of a long continuing party in the bars and big houses of Hollywood and Beverly Hills. Party, party, party. The world is coming to an end and all that matters is where the next drink is coming from. The last of their two shows at the Forum was livened up with a special guest, an amazing looking woman the STP tax squad met in one of the red leather hotel bars. No telling which one. She insists her name is Joy Bang and styles herself in the Mae West tradition with caked on makeup and huge false eyelashes. No one's quite sure what to make of her, but she's got character. So they put her in a limo and send her out on stage to present Mick with a bowl of rose petals for the Street Fighting Man finale. It probably seemed like a good idea at the time. The best party of the LA dates took place at the home of Gary Stromberg, the Stone's recently anointed public relations chief. He'd been absent thus far on the tour, holding it down in his Sunset Strip office while his business partner, Bob Gibson, made the trek. But road life didn't agree with Gibson, so he tapped out and Gary subbed in. Gary's recovering from a case of hepatitis and was warned by his doctor not to drink, not to take drugs, and to get plenty of sleep. Should he fail on any of those first three, he's to take a vitamin B12 shot. Gary will get a lot of B12 shots over the next few weeks. He and his condom filled with cocaine fit in immediately. He heralds his STP arrival with a rager at his home in the Hollywood Hills, which gets so wild that he's forced to call in security guards from the nearby Whiskey A Go-Go Club. It was a night few could forget, and fewer still could remember. It was up in the Woodrow Wilson area of the Hollywood Hills. I had this incredibly a miniature castle I was living in. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. It was handmade by this one guy who died after years of building this castle. It was an incredible place. But anyways, we had this party there, and there must have been a hundred people there. And after a while, it just turned into a sing-along where everybody was singing. I had a, a record player playing, and... People would sing along with the lyrics of the various songs we were playing. And then Bobby Womack and Willie Weeks showed up and they played. And then we all started singing. I don't know how it all evolved, but it, it went on to the very late hours, like 4 o'clock in the morning, I think. Everybody was singing. And what eventually happened was it was like the last man standing. It was like, what's that game you play? Musical chairs. I was the last guy who could still remember lyrics to anything. We're talking Mick and Keith were there. Mick and Keith, hell yeah. And, they're, 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 and sing, they're singing along. They're singing harmony for you yes. in the background. Yes, that's what it ended up. But we were doing a lot of doo-wop songs, which are great for sing-alongs. So my memory was that the last song went on was in the still of the night, and I knew all the lyrics, and they just sang along behind me. So I ended up with a cassette 
because I was of a mind to record this thing, fortunately, but I've lost that cassette. Gary, can you sing? No. <laughs> no, but I, I'm, I'm enthusiastic about my, even though I can't know, I was awful, awful. Gary's home had a notorious reputation even before the STP rager. It was steeped in seedy, noir lore. For most up-and-comers in the L.A. music scene, this was a major selling point, and Gary was no exception. There was a ghost in my house. The guy who built the house died in the house. And I was told when I rented the place that his ghost was still inhabiting the house. And I mean, it sounds stupid because I, I don't believe in ghosts, but this guy was there. There was a dinner party that I had on another night where there was a noise in the kitchen. The kitchen was down a flight. And I walked down to my kitchen and all the burners on the stove were on, four of them. Nobody that was in the house could have done that. <laughs> had to have been the ghost. Uh, there were noises that were just doors would open and stuff that just were unexplainable. But he was a friendly ghost. So uh, that's what I was told, he was a friendly ghost. He just wanted to make sure that you respected the, the property. I think this is a, a Robert Stone, really great novel. It said, nobody knows what comes out from under the decks of those houses in the Hollywood Hills at night. Well, there was a spooky quality to living in the Hollywood Hills, that's for sure. Mm. My street had no street lights. Mm. Um, you had to walk down probably 75 stairs to get to my place, down a steep hillside. You'd hear noises in the hills. Uh, yeah, I was aware that it was a kind of a freaky place to live, but the Hollywood Hills always were the place of the people, in, in, certainly in the music business. So it was a spooky place. But, but having lived in Topanga for almost a year, is the cost of doing business. You accepted this, and there were crazy people at the shopping center there. It's never been any different in these canyons. The hills are, yeah. They're, the hills. They're, there's a spooky quality to living in the hills, in the canyons. And a lot of the evil in Los Angeles has occurred in the... And a lot of the artistry has occurred in there those places, too. Laurel Canyon. There you go. There's a lot of the, all the artistry that we know of and love. They kind of go hand in hand. They're like, uh, the, you know, dark side, light side, Manichaean, the split. They're one and the same, you know, if you look at it that way. They, they feed off one another. And maybe the art is a reaction to the darkness, but it's also a way of expressing it. This was an era of paranoia the anxious inverse of the optimism at the dawn of the 60s. In those happy days, anything seemed possible. Now, after the tumult of the decade, anything seemed possible. Paul McCartney might be dead. Why not? Jimmy, Jim, and Janice were, not to mention Brian. The CIA might have killed the president. Why not? The Pentagon Papers proved the State Department was lying to us about Vietnam. What else are they hiding? Maybe the government would try and kill us. Why not? The National Guard had just shot four students to death for peacefully protesting at Kent State University. Reality was just as troubled as the most way out conspiracy claim. No one was sure what to believe. Not even the Stones. So Keith espoused certain theories that I always found remarkable. With a completely straight face, and I was not about to argue with him, he explained to me that this was not the original Tina Turner, that Ike had murdered the original Tina Turner, and this was, well, I mean, 
Uh, Keith Richards is telling me this. I'm not going to argue with him. That was one, which I found astonishing back then. And then the last time I interviewed him on the phone, there's no controlling Keith. Whatever the subject you begin on, you will not end with. He's just going to, it's all coming through his mind. And out of the blue, all of a sudden, Keith starts speaking about, I feel so bad about Phil Spector, man. Phil was in jail at that point for murder, right? And I said, do you want to give him a cake with a file in it? He said, no, man, a bomb, okay? Phil Spector was just one of the most visible Hollywood paranoiacs. Los Angeles was full of weirdos of every stripe. Their presence was unavoidable. They uneasily coexisted with the beautiful people and their perfectly manicured lawns and freshly polished Rolls Royces. The two worlds scraped against one another like a psychic fault line, and the rumble was palpable throughout L.A. There was an element of danger, I guess you could say. Uh, it was a very volatile city. This was always a city of people that lived on the fringe. You know, and this were people, the dreamers that came to L.A. was known for it. You know, there was the, at the end of the country, this was the last stop. And so there was always, you know, the potential for violence and craziness that existed here. We had the Hillside Strangler. We had a lot of darkness previous to the 72 tour that existed in Los Angeles. We've always had serial murder that found residence here. Um, so it had an element of that. But the city, I mean, people, you know, I'm born and raised here. I kind of took that for granted. You know, it's surprising that not all cities had, you know, that you could go somewhere else where that, where that wasn't, you know, in the background. So that was sure that was the element of that. The culture quake finally occurred at 10050 Cielo Drive, just after midnight on August 9th, 1969. Four twenty-somethings, acting on orders from Charles Manson, creepy-crawled their way into the Benedict Canyon home of actress Sharon Tate, the wife of blockbuster director Roman Polanski. Once inside, they murdered Tate and three of her friends, men's hairstylist Jay Sebring, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, and Wojciech Frykowski. They also killed a teenager named Stephen Parent, who stopped by to visit the groundskeeper. They found him dead in his car in the driveway. A butchery followed the next day when more Manson followers slaughtered middle-class supermarket executive Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary. The victims seemingly had nothing to do with one another. They traveled in completely different socioeconomic circles and lived in totally separate parts of the city. The apparent randomness of the crime, to say nothing of the brutality, put Los Angeles on high alert. So I was living here then. I was living in Topanga, right? And the impact of the Manson murders were on the star community. Bel Air, Bev Hills, Hollywood stars who feared all of a sudden that they're coming to get us, right? Because Sharon Tate, and, you know, Roman Polanski, this was... JC bring the hairstylist. This is the A-list film biz celeb, right? And a lot of those people bailed, left and came back, but left, you know, got out of town nervous and and even once the trials were going on a lot of charlie's people were still on the street and he was in topanga you know a friend of mine would be hitching and charlie would pick him up you know charles manson was something of a familiar face in the la music scene he harbored dreams of being a singer and leached onto anyone who might further his ambition for a time manson lived with dennis wilson the drummer for the beach boys 
famously recorded one of his songs, a pairing that perfectly sums up the lightness and darkness of L.A. in the late 60s. Dennis would take Manson out clubbing to the Whiskey A Go-Go, where he no doubt rubbed shoulders with countless other musical luminaries. Neil Young would later admit to knowing Manson, as did Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas and Sly Stone. Many others did as well, but they understandably preferred to keep that association to themselves in the wake of his arrest. To them, Manson just seemed like another hippie singer-songwriter. But image can't be trusted. Another musical figure of the era who knew Charles Manson was Gary Stromberg, unbeknownst to his friend Robert Greenfield. Do you know my Manson story? I produced the first Manson album. <laughs> I have to leave. What's it called? Lie, L-I-E. I was at Universal Studios. I had this friend named Phil Kaufman. He managed Graham Parsons. Burned Graham's body Burned in Joshua Graham's, Tree. Kidnapped the body out of the cargo. But he was a very good friend of mine. He got arrested for smuggling marijuana from Mexico and was thrown into Terminal Island here. And he was a cellmate of a guy named Charlie Manson. Unreal. And I would go see Phil in prison and write to him. And he asked if I could get him some acid. So I would drop acid onto stationary droplets and write letters to the, And he'd lick it. They, they'd cut it up into segments. And they would, he would pass it around, and Charlie got his acid from me. But when uh, Charlie was getting out, Phil knew he wanted to get in the music business, and I was the only one that Phil knew that was connected to the music business. I was under contract at Universal Studios at the time as a boy producer, and I had an office at Universal, and they just started a record company. So onto the Universal lot one day, pulls Charlie up in his bus with his girls. Oh, really? Guard calls my office and says, there's a guy here that says he knows you. He tells me that story. Phil had told me that, that Charlie would, you know, appreciate me helping him. So I set up a meeting. Charlie comes in, brings a guitar, sits on my desk. He's playing music. He's just wild. He's got these girls dancing around. They're all high. And I called this guy, Russ Reagan, who was the head of Uni Records. They had just started the label. I said, there's a guy here that, you know, I think he just listened to. He said, sure, bring him up. So I went up to his office. Charlie Gunn sits on his desk, starts playing music. And Russ is looking at me like, what is this? And, <laughs> and Russ, just out of embarrassment, says, I'll give you money to do a demo. So we set up a demo. Charlie shows up in his bus with the girls. And he had come to my house a few nights to prepare for this thing. And that's when I was married to Chelsea Brown, a beautiful black girl, who I at the time didn't know, but Charlie had this whole idea that uh, Armageddon was going to be, you know, a race war. Helter-skelter. Helter-skelter, yeah. So we did this session. They were all high on acid. It was just ridiculous. And I didn't know what I was doing. I'm theoretically producing it, but there was an engineer who was just turning on and off the stuff. The stuff was terrible. And there was about five songs, and we stopped it. And I took it up to Russ the next day. We listened to it, and Russ said, just get rid of this. This is terrible. And I did, and Charlie got really upset with me because I wasn't able to help him. And he tried to get me, you know, to try other places. And I said, this isn't me. This is not what, I'm, not what I do. And Charlie, we just split up on bad terms. After striking out with Gary Stromberg, Manson attached himself to music producer Terry Melcher, the son of Hollywood royalty Doris Day. Melcher had made a name for himself working with the Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders. He was a good guy for a wannabe pop star to know and Manson pestered him about a recording contract. 
Like Gary, Melcher held a demo session just to be polite and then gave him the slow fade. He was fairly confident that Charles Manson didn't have what it took to reach the top of the hit parade. Some have theorized that Charlie's murderous turn in the summer of 69 had less to do with half-baked theories of a post-apocalyptic race war and more to do with his rage at the Hollywood establishment for turning their back on him and his talent. His true motive can never be determined for certain, but during the time they worked together, Melcher had lived at 10050 Cielo Drive, the same address he told his followers to visit in August 1969, instructing them to kill everyone inside. Though he knew that Melcher had already moved out, his choice of house likely wasn't a complete coincidence. He got with Melcher. That all happened after I failed him. And when all of that shit went down with uh, Tate and all, he got arrested. The FBI came to me to inform me that when they had arrested Charlie, they had found a list of people that he intended to murder. And then I was on that list. I tailed it out of town. <laughs> I went to Europe and just hung out. For how long? About a month or two. How long after and this? And moved around. I was just afraid. I kept. I got a van and I just drove all over Europe, just fearing for my life. So you knew he was dangerous? I knew there were other guys that were still on the street that weren't arrested. They were still part of the Manson movement. I mean, I knew Charlie over the course of a few months. So I knew, you know, a little bit about him. And, and just him getting arrested did not remove the threat that I felt. So I just kept moving around in Europe for a while until I felt it was safe to come back. I am speechless. I have known Gary Stromberg for 50 (laughs) years, never heard this. The only thing I can contribute to this, and this is back to, you know, everything that rises must converge. The same is true about everything that sinks. And at one point, uh, Timothy Leary found himself in solitary at Folsom Prison for marijuana bust, but everything aggravated by his behavior in court and being Timothy Leary. And it was a tapping on the wall and the voice said, I've been waiting a long time for you to get here, Tim. Manson was in the next cell. So it all kind of, I don't know. I mean, what this speaks to is the outer edge of rock and roll and the insanity that always lies behind the curtain here. It's not a fine, you know, you want to talk about the guy from the 13th floor elevators. You want to talk about Sid Barrett. You want to talk about Peter Green. I could make a list, you know, sympathy for the devil. Well, uh, (laughs) thank you for linking it all together. You know, but Jagger comes to that song from the master and the margarita, a book he read, you know, Jagger is an artist, a real artist who's able to draw on other art, but, There are other people, as Gary has just said, in this quote-unquote business who are on, not just on the edge of madness, who are legit, completely crazy. We're not really off-topic because psychosis in rock and roll is like an environmental hazard. You know, it's there. It's real. The Stones used L.A. as a home base while they played gigs throughout the Southwest. The usual madness followed in their wake. What was headline news on the first few tour stops now seemed predictable and even dull. There's street fighting in San Diego as the kids and cops do battle in the street. Rocks and Molotov cocktails are thrown. Yawn. There's tear gas in Tucson when hundreds of fans act up after realizing they've been sold phony tickets by particularly nasty scalpers. 
A police report is waiting for them in Albuquerque, informing them that a major riot is feared. So three separate law enforcement agencies are called in. Ironically, nothing much happens. When the plane leaves after the concert that night, it turns north for the first time, towards Denver and the open road. There's six weeks of full-throttle trucking ahead, and there's no way of saying what's out there. California's been good, but as Jagger says, California doesn't have anything to do with the rest of America, does it? That's as good an assessment as any. It's its own unique place, reflecting back your deepest fantasies, whatever they may be, but somehow unknowable. No wonder Mick feels so at home there. For years, it's provided the image of America to the rest of the world, but it's never been the real thing. As Mick says to Robert Greenfield as their plane takes off, the truth of it is, the tour hasn't even really started. Stone's Touring Party is written and hosted by Jordan Runtalk, co-executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk, edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown, with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.